0: Dazzling Innovations from NIAC, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. NIAC is the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program. It was once again my great pleasure to host the live webcast of the program's 2022 Symposium in Tucson, Arizona. We'll hear from just three of the NIAC Fellows who are working to turn their brilliant ideas into realities. Then we'll try to get Bruce Betts to give you the shirt off his back. Have you heard? We didn't just nudge an asteroid, we gave it a great big shove. Congratulations to the Double Asteroid Redirection Test Team and to NASA's Planetary Defense Coordination Office. We learned as this week's show was coming together that the DART spacecraft's impact caused a substantial change in the orbit of Dimorphos, the smallish moonlit space rock that orbits larger Didymos. The work is far from finished, but we now have good evidence that we can prevent asteroids from causing hell on Earth if we find the dangerous ones soon enough. But we now have good evidence that we can prevent asteroids from causing hell on Earth if we find the dangerous ones soon enough. Check out our coverage at planetary.org. That's also where you'll find our free weekly newsletter, the downlink. The October 7 edition features a beautiful image of Jupiter's moon Europa, captured just days ago by the Juno orbiter. Nearly all of the current NIAC fellows, the men and women who lead the projects funded by the program, came to the University of Arizona last month to share their progress. The clips I have for you today are pulled from the live stand-up interviews I did across the three days of this year's symposium. More are waiting for you at Planetary.org/slash radio and in the podcast. You can learn about all the current and past NIAC studies on the program website, and that's also where you can learn how to propose a study of your own. Want to live in a mushroom house on Mars, or maybe a similar structure on our own world? Lynn Rothschild and partners in her NIAC study are working on fungi-based building materials that are starting to demonstrate the advantages of what they call mycotexture. Mycotexture. I mean, just starting there, what a great term.
1: We start with the Greeks. Myco, meaning all things fungal. Texture from the word architecture, so it's a portmanteau. Fungal architecture.
0: Congratulations on the publication of the paper that you set on stage. Happened like, what, two hours ago? Maybe two and a half now?
1: Yes, yes, and we're very excited to finally have our first publication out on this. I think one of the reasons that people become interested in this is that it's not some exotic physics principle. Everyone knows what a mushroom is, and you think... Mushroom and space, you put those together, that seems weird and exotic, but it's something that's tangible. And in fact, speaking of tangible, I brought you some things.
0: Look at these wonderful yes. props, which are more than props.
1: These are actually pieces of mycotexture. These are fungal composites, so the fungal mycelia, these hair-like structures that are beneath the ground that all mushrooms have, plus many other fungi, binding together things like wood chips. Of course, we wouldn't have wood chips on Mars. You might bind together the, the lunar regolith or the Martian regolith, or maybe drop stitches in an inflatable or something like that. But I really want you to take a look at these and, and smell them. And, and I
0: did, and, and I wish we, you know, if this was smell-o-vision, it would be wonderful because while this one, which you said looks kind of like plywood, doesn't smell like plywood. It smells like what it's made of. It
1: smells vaguely mushroomy, doesn't yeah. it? And here, you can tell once it's baked and it's good and hard... You can hear, it's. this is a nice, heavy brick. Um, we've been joking about throwing it at people, we will not do that, but it clearly you could build a house out of this without any trouble. This, you don't have to worry about joints, you just fill mold to conform to whatever shape you want.
0: You're testing these materials on the ISS?
1: Exactly. We had the opportunity to test some of these on ISS, and it was great. They actually survived very nicely. They lost very little mass. They were up there for about five months. And it turns out you notice that these are, are pretty dark. Um, in fact, there are no invisible mushrooms that I know of, and you're not an albino and I'm not an albino, all of us all of us on planet Earth, virtually every organism has this compound called melanin of some sort, and so that's what's giving the color to our skin, keeping us from being dead white, or our hair, and also with mushrooms. And it turns out the melanin can provide protection from radiation. Sort of weird there, but you think, aha! Radiation, space, and so that was one of the things that they were testing on ISS is particularly the these melanized mushrooms, the ones that are pretty much black. And I know this is kind of disgusting, but you've probably seen black fungi when you go open your dishwasher if you haven't cleaned it in a while, you see this sort of blackish gunk around the edge.
0: Black mold.
1: Those are exactly what that, is. And those are highly resistant to radiation. Bad news. So go clean your dishwasher.
0: Fascinating. And it's planet Earth that I want to finish up with, because It also looks like (laughs) that's where everybody I know lives here. Um, The work that you are doing, not intending it for the moon or Mars, but to benefit society, civilizations, in many cases, people who are underserved right here on Earth, in the United States, in Africa. Say something else about that.
1: Absolutely. So one of the parts of the NIAC program is that, let's be honest, not everything that we're funded for will ever fly. Um, and so it's really important to show that they have spin-offs for planet Earth. And this one has such obvious spin-offs. One of the things that we've thought about all along is the potential for building refugee shelters. And my colleague, Chris Maurer, who's a principal architect at Red House Studios has moved forward in a way that I can't, as civil servant, actually starting to build refugee shelters in Namibia using exactly the technology that we're developing for NASA, as well as actually building some houses in Cleveland, Ohio, um, for underserved communities. We also, interestingly enough, on the other side, have thought a bit about building parts of sustainable restaurants using this approach and so we've been very fortunate to have a connection with a restaurant in the Basque region of Spain called Azermende which is one of the top restaurants in the world I have not eaten there yet but I certainly plan to and it has been rated the top sustainability restaurant in the world and their chef Chef Enrico has gotten very excited about our technology and so he is allowing us to have a NASA corner outside so there will be a whole sort of Booth and structure and tables made out of this microtexture. And my vision is ultimately we have the food, we have the clothing, we have the tablecloth all made out of fungal mycelia.
0: Some of you will remember my delightful conversation earlier this year with our next NIAC fellow John Mather, senior astrophysicist, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center fellow. Senior Project Scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope, and incidentally, shared the Nobel Prize for physics in 2006.
2: Yes, it's a a great uh, adventure to be having, and here I am at NIAC, because I have another idea. (laughs) And we're going to talk about that
0: idea, primarily. It is great to see you again. You were a guest on Planetary Radio last February, early February. The JWST was just beginning its deployment. I think it's safe to say that went well. Yeah, it worked out. Well, we could spend the next hour or two talking about the JWST and hopefully looking at some of those beautiful images. But this new proposal, which you have called
2: Hybrid Observatory for Earth-Like Exoplanets, you're not sitting on your laurels, are you? No, this is an idea that uh, actually is not new. Um, other people thought about it, but I think the time could be now for doing it. So it, the idea is, well, let's put an orbiting starshade 100 meters across, out in outer space, orbiting around the Earth, and put it where it can cast a shadow of a star onto a telescope on the ground. So we're building really big telescopes on the ground. They're going to be a lot bigger than we can build in space anytime soon. So the biggest one is 39 meters across, which is six times as big as the web. And it's a lot bigger than the biggest one NASA plans to do in the future in space. So let's see if we can do this. So how does it work? Well, if you cast a shadow, uh, that blocks the starlight, and then you can see the little planets that are next to it. That's pretty hard, but it's not impossible. What's that figure that, that on average, the stars outshine the planets circling them by how much? Well, the sun is 10 billion times brighter than the Earth. So that's, uh, well, you're trying to find a firefly next to a searchlight. Well, you just got to not look at the searchlight. The star shade itself... Quite a beautiful object, very interesting shape.
0: And you made the point that uh, a good part of the design that you guys are looking
2: at is based on prior NIAC work. Absolutely. Webster Cash proposed this back many many years ago, maybe more than 20. And uh, they found the solution, the mathematical shape that was required to make the pointed star shade keep the light away from the telescope. There's a thing called diffraction light bends around corners, bends around edges. So if you don't want that to happen, you have to have a special shape. So the light will still bend, but send it away from the telescope. So that's what those sharp points do. It's
0: easy to slew a telescope on the ground, but the star shade is gonna to have to move really far, won't it, if you wanna to move to a star system in another part of
2: the, of the galaxy? Oh, absolutely. The orbit we've found, we're we calling this an astrostationary orbit, so it's not geostationary. We wanted the star shape to hover uh, on the line between the telescope and the star. That's astrostationary. So first, you got to put it there, and then you got to keep it there for a while. We can do that for maybe an hour with rocket engines. So you got to match the acceleration of the observatory as the Earth rotates. Then you say, "Well, I'm done with that star. Let me try another one." So now you have to reorient that orbit completely. That's hard to do. So it needs propulsion again. So we have in mind solar electric propulsion, which, of course, we know how to do it. Um, we're just trying to minimize the amount that we need. So that leads us to why are we here for NIAC, because we said, well, we know how to design one of these things, but it's too heavy and too expensive. So let's look for a lighter weight one that uh, we could maybe cut the mass by a factor of five or ten. Well, that would cut the cost by a factor of 5 or 10, maybe, so it's worth trying. So we now need an an ingenious way to unfold this thing. It's 100 meters across, as big as two football fields side by side, and put it out there in space and then push it around with a rocket. Have you heard
0: any presentations today that have s- some promise for
2: helping you to achieve this in terms of uh, reducing mass or anything else? Well, the, the one that I heard about actually was a while ago. There's a, NIACS supported a, a, a concept from Tethers Unlimited, and it was called a, a trussellator. So they had in mind a, a, a little device that would produce a truss, starting with spools of uh, material and so i I would like to have that so i actually already wrote to the company and they say they're interested
0: that was a fascinating presentation here yesterday that kilometer wide structure out of one uh, one launch
2: anyway it makes my problem sound easy
0: (laughs) i wouldn't go that far maybe easier anyway that 39 meter telescope i also think of the one Uh, the Giant Magellan Telescope, a little bit smaller. The mirrors are being made for that telescope right across this campus at the University of Arizona in the Mirror Lab. Is that also in the scale of telescopes that might, at what range, how many light years, be able to reveal an Earth-like planet?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The distance you can see is proportional to the size of the telescope. So um, 24 meters is good too. You can see awfully far with that. So it just takes you a little bit longer to see those planets, but absolutely they're good enough. One more major
0: point, because it was how I think you closed your presentation, and that was how you involved, I think we can call it citizen science, although we were reaching out to schools and students, uh, and how you've brought them into the research,
2: that uh, the questions that you want to answer. Well, we have two steps. We discovered that NASA has a community challenge process, an office Uh, and we said, okay, can we play? And they said, yes, we can do this. Uh, There's an organization called grabcad.com. Amateur designers, professional designers, they contribute their uh, computer-aided designs to this place. So we say, okay, you send us a design. And we got at least 50 interesting designs came in and we gave prizes for the best. The next step is going to go through the Students' Society of Physics Students and uh, send out a challenge to colleges and universities around the country and around the world and uh, set it up as a fairly formal thing. Say, uh, uh, show us your mechanical concept. Show us why it could be good enough, strong enough, stiff enough, light enough. And then uh, if we like it, we'll send you some resources so you can actually go on to the next step and end up with a scale model, one meter, two meters, three meters, that shows us the principle you have in mind and why it should really be the right thing.
0: I wanna congratulate the winner of that first round competition you had, Abner Gomez, who happens to be at an institution in Mexico. How can others learn about
2: this and maybe um, come up with a submission? GrabCAD.com, you just get a a login and you can go look and see what people have posted as challenges. It's not just NASA that offers challenges to this community. And uh, be watching when we announce the ones through the students. So we plan to send it out to all the colleges and universities that have physics and aerospace engineering departments. John, delightful to talk to you once
0: again. Thank you for this. And let's go find those worlds that look like ours. Yes, thank you,
2: Matt. They're out there.
0: I was delighted to welcome NIAC fellow Bonnie Dunbar for one of my brief interviews at the 2022 NIAC Symposium. And if her name or face look familiar, it's probably because she rode the space shuttle into low Earth orbit five times between 1985 and 1998. So not too surprising to learn that you might be someone who wants to see astronauts in the best possible spacesuits. Welcome, Bonnie.
3: Thank you very much. And you're right. I think my father used to say that necessity is the mother of invention. And I learned where necessity needed to be applied.
0: I mean, did you you didn't do any extravehicular activity, right, across your five? But um, you still had to, I'm sure, wear the suits.
3: Well, I was assigned to a contingency EVA for my first two flights. So I went through all of the water training with another crew member on my flights. We practiced to do things like emergency door closures and for the contingency environment. So for all intents and purposes, I was trained for two flights to do spacewalks.
0: And you certainly had lots of colleagues who were doing EVAs and learned pretty quickly, I guess most of you did, one size does not fit all.
3: Well, that's true. We, we actually, uh, during Apollo, had custom suits. They were very much uh, customized to the individual for not just fit, but also performance because we were going to the moon. There was a different strategy implied uh, applied for the shuttle, and they started out with five of these chest sizes called hard upper torsos to fit 5th percentile females to 95th percentile males. And for budgetary reasons and engineering reasons, by the way, that was reduced at one point to two and then back up to three. But the smallest size ended up being medium, and then went large and extra large. And unfortunately, those original huts also were sized for shoulder widths that were more male oriented. And so it made it very problematic for most of the women to train in them.
0: And during your presentation, I mean, you had slides, one in particular, that really demonstrated once again, basically a spacesuit, especially one that is designed to, for walking on the moon or Mars or being out there in in space, these are human-shaped spaceships.
3: Well, absolutely. And that actually makes it more complex and difficult to design because you have to have mobility in them. Altogether, if you count the liquid cooling garment on it, you've got about 17 layers of fabric all bunched together that you've got to move when it's pressurized. You're like a balloon. And the delta pressure is about 4.3 psi. So as soon as you do that, you rigidize these soft soft fabrics. Now you still have to bend your elbows. You have to be able to work your gloves. And if you're on a planet, you have to be able to bend over and you have to be able to bend your knees because you're now a planetary geologist. So it's it's a complicated problem, but one that we want to take on. (laughs)
0: I'm also thinking you've got to get back up if you happen to fall down while you're on the moon or Mars. What is digital thread, which is sort of the catch all? catchy term that you've come up with.
3: Well, I didn't invent the term. I'm applying it. Digital thread is actually relatively new in the literature, but it's the whole process started, I think, out in aviation, where now we can design airplanes digitally. We can apply computational fluid dynamics. We can design wings and look at the flight, all in modeling and design the airplane then go build it. So I thought, well, why can't I do that with a spacesuit? because we haven't actually designed a new spacesuit in 45 years so there are no digital CADs of this, the suits we're wearing mm-hmm. but if we start at the very beginning and we can build the models and we can scan the human to go into the suit and then we can look at performance, we're calling it the virtual thread first, and then start to follow the the steps of a digital thread that's used in manufacturing in airplanes for example, and that's when you pull everything together so you've got the, everything on, on a file that's digitally about that suit. And why is that important? Well, if you're going to Mars for three years, you're not going to have a Home Depot down the street. (laughs) Uh, You may not always have uh, the ready access to mission control. You might have to repair there. You might have to repurpose materials. Do you need a 3D printer? Do you need a 3D knitter? What do you need to help keep that suit operational? Because without the suit, you're not exploring. And and that's the vision. But also the vision is to take that digital environment, scan you, and in a very short period of time, have a suit that fits you. That's the science fiction part of it.
0: Remember, you can learn more about these and all the other current and past NIAC studies on the program website. It makes for great reading I'm very grateful to Acting NIAC Program Executive Michael LaPointe and his outstanding staff for allowing me to once again meet so many of the outstanding NIAC fellows. I hope to see them all again next year. Bruce Batson, and What's Up are a minute away here on Planetary Radio.
3: There's so much
4: going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science.
0: Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism boldly going where no one had gone before i want you to know about a very special organization called the planetary society they are working to make the future that star trek represents a reality boldly go to build our future time once again for what's up on planetary radio so here's the chief scientist of the planetary society Bruce Batz is with us once again. Tell us about the night sky and oh, so much more. What's going on up there?
4: Got uh, planets, but we've got other stuff going on too. So in the evening sky, it's just, it's great planet viewing right now, you know, except when it's cloudy. We've got bright Jupiter up in the evening in the east. And then we've got Saturn looking yellowish up above it. Coming up a couple hours later in the mid to late evening is reddish Mars. Mars getting brighter and brighter over the next couple months. Look for it. Watch for it. It'll be cool. And the moon is hanging out near Mars on the 14th. But wait, don't order yet. We've also got a average mediocre meteor shower. <laughs> which if you're in a dark site, I just don't like to build people up. Yeah, don't oversell. Oh, there's a meteor shower tonight. I, I don't like to. If I This is, you know, easy thing seeing see in the night sky. This is good if you're in a dark site and if you're patient. Uh, this is debris left over by Comet Halley, so it's got famous debris. I mean, you can get up to 20 meteors per hour from a really dark site. Uh, you'll want to look late in the evening, approaching midnight and after midnight. The moon will come up at two or three in the morning and interfere some, but not too badly. But wait, if you're in the right part of the world, we've also got a partial solar eclipse. Ah. This will be visible on not for you on October twenty-fifth, <laughs> visible from most of Europe, southwestern Asia, and northeastern Africa. This is a partial solar eclipse. So, hey, direct viewing without proper eye protection can hurt. Kids, don't do it. Find a safe way to watch.
0: So how do you know I'm not in northeastern Africa? Since you do know, and maybe people can tell, I'm not in my normal studio.
4: Wow. That is a pretty (laughs) generic room you're in. Uh, Well, if you're there, enjoy on October 25th. We'll get more details next week for you. We move on to this week in space history. Amazingly, it is 25 years since the launch of the Cassini spacecraft. Eventually getting to Saturn and doing all sorts of awesome things. It's with Saturn, its moons, its environment, and that uh, good stuff. Launched 25 years ago this week. On to Random Space <laughs>
0: Friend to you and me. George, George,
4: George. As you, as we've discussed before, in terms of average densities of planets in our solar system, Earth is the highest and Saturn is the lowest. How do they compare? The average density of Earth compared to the average density of Saturn is like the density of iron compared to the density of water. Saturn looks at us and says, you're really dense. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you have done it again. That is another outstanding random space if that is a hall of fame random space fact
4: really okay cool i knew it was random now, now i know it's hall of fame oh this is exciting i'm exhilarated appropriately when i'm exhilarated let's go on to the trivia contest i asked you in the isa european space agency studied mission don quixote which never went beyond a study but was one part of what led to dart and hera the follow-on mission from isa What were the two spacecraft going to be named that were part of Don Quixote? How'd we do, Matt?
0: Just a quick response this time from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. Don Quixote was a mission ESA had in mind, deflecting of an asteroid Hidalgo's main design. Sancho hung around to watch, to film Ejecta's stream. And Dart just showed us why it's not impossible to dream. Get it? Impossible dream?
4: Oh my gosh! I didn't get it. Wow, wow, impressive
0: Yeah, I agree, but Sancho and Hidalgo ccc
4: and do you realize how hard it was that they actually ended up canceling the mission they didn't make this mission because they couldn't find a windmill shaped asteroid. <laughs>
0: You just thought of that, didn't you? We have a winner. Yeah, I, did. It's Steve. I got it. I got it. Stephen Whitehead in the United Kingdom. Congratulations, Stephen. He's been entering off and on for a long time, but this is a first-time win for Stephen. And, of course, what do we have for him? I'm afraid it's not a windmill-shaped asteroid. It's just a good old planetary society. Kick asteroid, rubber asteroid. So uh, congratulations, Stephen. We'll, uh, we'll put that in the mail to you.
4: Congratulations. We move on to next time. As of now, October 2022, what spacecraft at Mars has been operating the second longest? Operating at Mars the second longest, go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Currently at Mars and operating second longest one
0: doing that. It's clear. Thank you. Yes. Uh, You have until the 19th. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be Wednesday, October 19, 2022, uh, to get us this answer by 8 a.m. Pacific time. I know what I want to give them. I want to give them your really cool shirt. No, 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 no. (laughs) Bruce has this great shirt. It is, I swear, a T-Rex being ridden by a sloth. And the T-Rex has what happening?
4: I think you're tripping pretty hard, buddy. No, no, you, you no. I'm looking uh, right
0: at it. It's, he is laser. Beams. I'm wearing
4: a blue polo shirt.
0: <laughs> He's lying, everyone. He is absolutely lying. It's a beautiful. It is against a wonderful star field as well. And the T-Rex has lasers shooting out of his eyes. Okay, we're done. <laughs> no, we're not. We're gonna. We're not going to oh. give you Bruce's shirt off his back. We're going to give you a Planetary Society kick-ass droid rubber. Asteroid, because there's so many of you out there who still want to win one. Now we're done.
4: All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about what Matt just described in his fever dream without a <laughs> fever. Uh, but add in a, a windmill shaped asteroid. Thank you, and good night.
0: You know, there's got to be one out there, right? Among all those hundreds of thousands. He's Bruce Betts. No one would know better <laughs> than him. He's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society who joins us every week here. What's up? Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its innovative members. Marco Verde and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra.